Welcome to our very first podcast episode on C-Squared, a series of critical conversations that lie at the heart of health injustices. This podcast is hosted by the Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health Education, Science, and Practice at the Boston University School of Public Health. I'm Elisa Monander. Today, we will be discussing the latest attacks on reproductive and abortion rights. This past year, many states like Texas and Mississippi have enacted laws that are severely limiting access to abortion. We will be talking with Nicole Huberfeld, a professor in health law, ethics, and human rights at BU about the laws attacking reproductive justice and the recent Dobbs versus Jackson Supreme Court case. Hi, Nicole, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on our very first podcast episode on C-Squared. Nicole, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now? Thank you so much for having me. It's really a delight to be here. I am the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at BU School of Public Health and a professor of law at the School of Law. And my work is at that intersection between health and constitutional law in particular. And in the reproductive justice space, what I've often studied is how policies impact poor women in particular, because I also write a lot about Medicaid and health reform and related issues. So a lot of my work is focused on the needs of vulnerable populations, and in this space, particularly Black, Brown, and other women of color, as well as low-income women, especially women in rural areas. So the issues that we're talking about today are especially important for women who are already vulnerable in a number of dimensions, perhaps in populations that are historically oppressed and otherwise disadvantaged. So I think that's probably the direction our conversation will go in today. Thank you so much for sharing, Nicole. So let's start with the Texas case known as Senate Bill 8 or SB 8, which set the stage for the critical moment that we're in right now. Could you talk about what happened with the Texas law and maybe specifically what are the features of the law and then what the current status of the law is? So Texas enacted a law of what people refer to as fetal heartbeat, been trying to prohibit abortion at the point that a fetal heartbeat is detectable. However, what Texas did is a little bit unusual in that instead of really focusing on what is probably the beginning of a fetal heartbeat, Texas pushed the line to six weeks. So most of those laws were 15-week laws. And 15 weeks is at the beginning of the second trimester. It is a little bit closer to, as I'm sure we'll talk about, what we think of as the line of viability, where a fetus would be viable outside of the womb. Mm -hmm. Texas prohibited abortion at six weeks, and Texas is arguing that uh, fetal heartbeat is detectable then. But in fact, a fetus is about the size of a lima bean at six Mm -hmm. weeks and is perhaps developing an electrical pulse that may become a heartbeat. But to call it a fetal heartbeat bill is misleading. The state got clever in terms of trying to avoid judicial review. And so what the state said was no one in the state can enforce this law. Only private parties can enforce this law. And when private parties come forward to enforce this law, they will be rewarded financially for successful lawsuits Mm -hmm. to the tune of $10,000 and more per successful claim. So people have been calling this bounty hunter's law, whistleblower law, people are calling it by a bunch of different names. And it's all the same idea that there will be private enforcement of this public law. And the state of Texas did this because 
A few years back, there was a case where Texas had enacted a cluster of laws called trap laws. Mm -hmm. And those laws are designed to make it harder to be an abortion provider and to close clinics. And so those include things like, instead of being like a doctor's office, the space in which abortions are provided has to be like an outpatient surgery center, which is a much more elaborate licensure process and a much more elaborate physical structure. Things like doctors who perform abortions have to obtain licensing privileges, admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles of their clinic. And mm. that is impossible to do because to get admitting privileges, physicians actually have to admit patients to the hospital and right. abortion providers can't get privileges at local hospitals. So Texas attempted to regulate abortion into a non-existent zone through these trap laws, went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court held that's an undue burden under Casey and Roe, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Because Texas lost that case, it actually had to pay a lot of legal fees in that case. And so in the SB8 situation, Texas was trying to avoid going to court and having to pay legal fees for what's effectively trying to nullify the federal constitutional determination that the right to privacy protects access to abortion pre-viability. SB8 has created a lot of litigation very quickly for a couple of reasons. One is that there are a couple of enterprising out-of-state people who have immediately tried to bring these whistleblower claims. We also have a challenge by reproductive rights groups saying this is unconstitutional and also you can't avoid judicial review just by being clever and making this a whistleblower law. Then the U.S. Justice Department tried to get involved in the case as well to say states cannot decide that they're not going to abide by constitutional law. All of that has been sort of swirling around. The process part of that went to the Supreme Court. Mm. So not the substance, not the question as to whether Texas is unlawfully prohibiting abortion at six weeks, but the question of whether Texas can successfully evade judicial review through this whistleblower mechanism, through this bounty hunter mechanism. The Supreme Court just recently decided the law can be challenged. However, the law is still being enforced while the legal challenges go on. What that has done is it has effectively shut down access to abortion in Texas. And there's a lot of reporting now on women having to travel to Oklahoma in particular to access abortion, especially poor women and women who are already struggling. The short version is SB8 is being enforced in Texas, but it is also being challenged in the courts. Now, moving on to the Mississippi law, how does the Mississippi law differ from the other state laws like Texas that took a big hit on abortion rights and access? Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion means that up to 15 weeks Theoretically, abortion is accessible. However, there's only one abortion provider in Mississippi. But Mississippi's law looks a lot like laws in other states because advocacy organizations like Americans United for Life write model laws, meaning they actually write the words that state legislators would use to create a new law. And these model laws get enacted by state legislators that are interested in limiting access to abortion. So there's a reason that these laws look the same. It's because state legislators are all using the same model laws to try to limit access to abortion. After Mississippi's case was taken by the Supreme Court, this is, it's the Dobbs case, by the way, after the Dobbs case was taken by the Supreme Court, Mississippi then enacted a law that looks like Texas's law. So Mississippi now also has a six-week ban on the books. That isn't the law that's in question before the Supreme Court. And so if you listen to the oral arguments at all, you'll hear 
that the justices are trying to think about this 15 week ban because that's the law that is before the court, not the six week ban that is also on the books in Mississippi. So there are two different laws in Mississippi being proposed right now. They're both enacted. They both exist. They're both the law in Mississippi that make it so that you can't access abortion under this feel heartbeat rubric. Oh, wow. What is the purpose of then taking this 15-week ban to the Supreme Court versus taking the six-week ban to Supreme Court? It's just chronology. The 15-week ban was the law that got challenged by reproductive rights groups and ban is the one that has made it all the way to the Supreme Court. So it's really just timing more than anything. And I I would say that Mississippi was probably emboldened by Texas's six-week ban. What I'm hearing you say is that really the written law part of Mississippi isn't necessarily different from other states, but the way that it's different is that they're able to challenge Roe and Casey. Is that correct? You're correct. This, This law doesn't look different from other states' fetal heartbeat laws. But what happened was when the law was challenged, Mississippi tried to defend it by arguing it is not unconstitutional to always ban abortion pre-viability. Once they started briefing the case, meaning submitting briefs to the Supreme Court to argue their case, they then started arguing the Supreme Court should overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And those are the two big precedents that are sort of the foundation for protecting access to abortion under the U.S. Constitution. So some people have called that a bait and switch because Mississippi wasn't originally arguing for overturning Roe and Casey. But once it started briefing the case, then it started arguing for overturning Roe and Casey. And so it was a bit of a pivot, a bit of a change in direction. Was that pivot anticipated? I think the pivot can be attributed to new personnel on the court, especially Amy Coney Barrett taking Justice Ginsburg's seat on the court. And Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch are also hostile to rights that are not specifically articulated in the U.S. Constitution, which happens to be a lot of civil rights, frankly. So once that change in personnel occurred, it became more predictable that Mississippi would really go all in and try to argue for overturning Roe and Casey. We can dive into the oral arguments that we heard on December 1st. How would you describe the key elements in defense of the Mississippi law? Mississippi is defending its law in a couple of different ways. One is attempting to argue that medicine has progressed to the point that the line of viability is earlier than it used to be. And that is, there is some truth to that in that, you know, when Casey was decided in the early 1990s, the line of viability was 25 weeks or so. Now, some fetuses can survive as early as 23 or 22 weeks. There's There's a leap in logic there. Basically, they're saying the line of viability has gotten earlier. Therefore, we're going to prohibit abortion at 15 weeks. But viability isn't 15 weeks. At the earliest, it's about 22 weeks. And even then, the chances of survival are quite low. There's another problem with that argument, which is that the line of viability isn't defined by the number of weeks. The Supreme Court, it's really just the line of viability. So in other words, the standard is flexible. And so let me just say a couple words about why the line of viability is important. Roe versus Wade held that there is a right to privacy that is protected by the U.S. Constitution 
specifically the 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And Roe versus Wade held that right to privacy protects the physician-patient relationship in such a way that decisions can be made regarding whether a pregnancy should be carried to term or not. So in other words, it's not specifically that there is a right to abortion for the duration of pregnancy. Rather, it is that this is a decision that can be made between the pregnant person and her physician, and states don't have a compelling enough interest to prevent that interaction before viability, meaning before the point at which a fetus could survive outside the womb and be an independent individual. So before viability, states were not permitted to outlaw abortion. After viability, the court held can't be a total ban on abortion after viability. There must be exceptions for the health and the life of the pregnant person. So Casey was the result of years of challenges to Roe. And in Casey, the court said, we're upholding the core of Roe, which is there's a right to privacy. It protects the ability to decide to have an abortion. And that ability is pre-viability post-viability, a state can outlaw abortion, but it must always have exceptions for the health or life of the pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. So let me just take that one step further. I know this is a lot of legal language, but it's important to understand for the oral arguments. The court said pre-viability, the state cannot place an undue burden on the woman seeking an abortion. What does that mean? The state cannot place a substantial obstacle in the path of a person seeking an abortion. Well, what's a substantial obstacle? This is the question. What is a substantial obstacle? Now, obviously, a ban on abortion pre-viability is a substantial obstacle because you can't have an abortion. And states have done lots and lots of things, like the trap laws that we talked about earlier, but also things like waiting periods, you know, waiting 24 hours between getting information about the abortion and having the procedure, things like parental consent requirements for minors, things like scripted information that has to be delivered to a woman in the name of trying to create some kind of informed consent. So states have found lots of ways to regulate abortion pre-viability. What's being tested here is the line of viability itself. In other words, is the line of viability actually a workable standard for federal courts to have to evaluate repeatedly because states are constantly writing laws testing this line of of case law? So there were a lot of questions about the line of viability, whether it's the best standard, whether it's a workable standard. Chief Justice Roberts in particular was asking whether there's a big difference between 15 weeks and the line of viability. And Mm -hmm. the reason he was asking that is that most abortions do occur in the first trimester. Mm -hmm. Most occur before 13 weeks. And so his questions were sort of trying to get at that particular issue. Is it so problematic to decide that 15 weeks is the right line in the sand? especially if we're uncertain how early viability might reach. So he was trying to think about the question that was actually presented by Mississippi's 15-week ban. The trouble with that, of course, is that it does start to erode the heart of Roe and Casey. It does start to whittle away protection for access to abortion. Likewise, here, the women who would be affected by a ban at 15 weeks would be 
young women, you know, teenagers who may not know that they're pregnant. It would be poor women who have to gather resources to try to access an abortion, maybe travel for one. It would be women of color who are less likely to be able to access uh, all of the reproductive services, right? And it would be women who are, for example, beneficiaries of Medicaid because Medicaid won't pay for abortion unless it's to Mm -hmm. save the life or health of the woman, right? So the people who would be affected by this ban would be the people who are especially vulnerable. And so arguably that unto itself is a reason to consider the undue burden on those vulnerable populations to be especially high. There was a lot of questioning about that, but there was also a lot of questioning during oral arguments about stare decisis or precedent. And the question there is, what are the circumstances under which a case that is so deeply entrenched in our law should be overturned? The circumstances under which that has occurred historically have been to protect more civil rights. Mm. And the example that kept coming up during oral arguments was a case called Plessy, in which the Supreme Court infamously held that separate but equal is an appropriate interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that's what made legal segregation possible in the United States for decades upon decades after the Civil Mm. War. Plessy was ultimately overruled, but not before there were decades of legal segregation doing harm to Black populations in the United States. And so Plessy gets cited for lots of different reasons by the parties in the case, because they're trying to say, well, we've reached the point that we reached in Plessy where we know that the you know fetal life is important and that it shouldn't be endangered by laws that permit abortion. However, <laughs> as I said a minute ago, When the court has overturned case law, it's always in the direction of protecting more civil rights, not retrenching and eliminating existing protected rights. And so that line of questioning was particularly troubling because it would sort of have twisted that history in such a way as to almost be unrecognizable. Mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that part? Well, so the justices were naming cases where the court had overturned prior precedent and, and trying to argue, I guess, that this is that same kind of situation. And I say, I guess, because, you know, at the end of the day, this this isn't the same kind of situation. The difference with Plessy, for example, is that the Supreme Court knew when it decided Plessy that separate but equal was not a reasonable interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. Majority of the justices on the Supreme Court at that time were hostile to the rights of freedmen, i.e. people who had been enslaved and were freed. Mm -hmm. And so the court was not interested in the project of Reconstruction and wasn't willing to protect freed slaves in a fashion that was meaningful. That isn't the same for Roe v. Wade and Casey. Those are cases that build upon a line of jurisprudence where the court has held that there are protections related to intimate relationships, protections related to the family, a right to privacy that includes things like using contraception. This also includes things like the fundamental right to marry, protected in cases like Loving versus Virginia, and then later Obergefell for same-sex couples, right? So there's this whole line of cases related to intimate relationships and decisions that fall under this rubric of the right to privacy. And so if Roe and Casey were to be overturned, there is a real danger that other 
intimate rights, other rights that are under this umbrella of the right to privacy, under other fundamental rights related to family and procreation and, and medical decision making, right? Mm-hmm. There's a real danger that they too could be on the chopping block. So then would you say those were the key arguments that they made against the Mississippi law? Yes. Fair to say that the parties challenging Mississippi's law were pretty focused on making sure that Roe and Casey are not overturned. And they were arguing for reliance on these decisions. In other words, Roe is 50 years old and decades of women have relied on being able to access abortion for many reasons, sometimes for medical necessity, sometimes because it's the right economic decision for their family, whatever it may be, right? They have relied on the existence of this line of precedent. And this reliance argument, I think, was pretty powerful. It is important for the justices to understand that, as as I've said in other places, that the the Kavanaugh idea that somehow the the court should be scrupulously neutral because the the Constitution says nothing about abortion is what he kept saying, Mm. except that it is not neutral to eliminate an individual right. Right. An individual right that has existed for two generations. And so that is what the challengers to the law were trying to point out, right? That the court, the best path for the court is to stay the course, to keep the line of viability as the standard for understanding when and how states can regulate abortion, to keep the line of viability because it's flexible enough to accommodate changes in medical technology, not to overturn Roe and Casey because it is actually a slippery slope, though I don't generally like slippery slope arguments. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it is, it's a fair one here because yeah. it does open the door to challenging other rights related to the family and medicine and and individual privacy. So it was a very nicely done argument against even considering overturning Roe and Casey and trying to explain that the line of viability is actually quite workable. So Nicole, could you talk about what lines of questions, I know you already mentioned some, but what lines of questions and comments from the justices really stood out to you? A couple of different lines that stood out. Justice Sotomayor was particularly powerful in making it clear that she thought that this was purely political, Mm. that the court was only considering this case because there had been a change in personnel, and that that is a dangerous thing for the court to do because the justices are supposed to be neutral arbiters of the law. And she said it's going to look bad for the court if the court overturns Rowan Casey, because it's just going to look like a change in personnel gets you what you want. And it's going to diminish the institutional integrity of the court. She was also especially good at driving home the impact of laws like Mississippi's law, fetal heartbeat laws on mm-hmm. poor women and women of color. She was especially good at highlighting issues related to accessibility, that this is flatly an undue burden, that there is no question as to whether Mississippi's law is unconstitutional, that there was no good reason for the court to take this case under Casey and Roe. Chief Justice Roberts seemed to be very interested in trying to figure out whether 15 weeks is a workable standard relative to the existing viability standard. Mm. And he, he, he seemed annoyed 
at least, that the Mississippi pulled this bait and switch, right? They said, please consider our 15-week ban. Oh, no, we want you to overturn Roe and Casey. Mm. He seemed troubled by that because that sort of is a, a challenge for the institutional integrity of the court. So it may be that he was trying to figure out a way to sort of thread the needle to, to get the justices who are interested in overturning Roe and Casey to see 15 weeks as a good compromise. Mm, Justice I Kavanaugh, see. as I said earlier, kept saying uh, we should be scrupulously neutral. He does this thing where he likes to say that he is sympathetic to the arguments being made to the court, but then doesn't protect the people seeking the court's help. It's just like, look, I'm a nice guy, nothing to see here. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to protect your rights anymore. So it's like a gaslighting almost where mm-hmm. he's trying to act as if he thinks that people have a sympathetic case, but then he turns around and won't protect them. Amy Coney Barrett's line of questioning, I thought was especially disturbing because she kept trying to hammer on safe haven laws. Safe haven laws are laws that make it so that it is not illegal to drop off a newborn at a place like a hospital, a police department, a fire station. She kept asking about safe haven laws as if somehow giving birth to a baby and giving it up is the equivalent of an abortion. There are many reasons that that is troubling. Let's just be clear. Pregnancy is not the normal state of affairs for the body, right? Pregnancy is actually (laughs) dangerous for a lot of women. It it is one of the top reasons that women have life-threatening blood clots, for example. You know, there are many, many reasons that we treat pregnancy as a condition that requires medical attention, right? (laughs) Yeah. so, So just act as if giving birth and giving up the baby is the equivalent of uh, a legal abortion is simply inaccurate at best. So, so that safe haven line of questioning is really part of this larger line of, of argument that times have changed and women can have it all. And if women want to have a baby and keep working, they can. If women want to have a baby out of wedlock, they can. Mm. If women want to have a baby and give it up, they can. And so therefore, women shouldn't be able to have abortion, right? Yeah. It's obviously uh, illogical right? for for a number of reasons, but it it was an attempt to say women have come a long way since Roe v. Wade, and so therefore they don't need abortion anymore. And if we really Mm -hmm. valued women, we would value their maternal role in society. And that's really just a traditionalist argument, right? Women should be having babies. Women should be taking care of babies. And therefore we should make women have babies if they get pregnant. Right, right. (laughs) Like they're able to do all these things. So just let's just force them to to have children because they should be able to now. Well, thank you, Nicole, for just giving that summary of the oral arguments. And so I want to ask you about while it's just speculation until the decision comes down in June, what are some of the plausible options that you see for the SCOTUS decision? And in what ways could they overturn or seriously gut Roe v. Wade? And I guess I think that there are a number of possibilities here. One is that Roe and Casey could be overturned. Mm. It is possible that there are five votes for that. I don't know if Roberts would be able to convince, for example, Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch Mm. that this would be the wrong way to go. 
it's quite clear that Justices Alito and Thomas don't think that there's a right to privacy protected by the Constitution at all, and they would undo that entire line of precedent. I think Justice Barrett has been cautious in her opinions so far. I think another possibility is that Chief Justice Roberts will somehow create at least a plurality of justices who are willing to say the 15-week line of in the sand is somehow a reasonable line in the sand, more reasonable than viability, more workable for lower federal courts because mm. they don't have to decide what viability means. And that would arguably uphold Casey and Roe, but it would erode Casey and Roe. Mm. Do I think that Roe and Casey get away unscathed? Probably not. In other words, is it possible that this court will simply say the 15-week ban is unconstitutional? That's a third option, but I think it's the least likely. And also, I would just want to say here, too, there are other cases in the pipeline. So even if, let's say, it's the third option. Yeah, There's a case coming up out of Arizona right now where Arizona has banned abortion based on fetal abnormalities such as Down syndrome, for example. And that has been stopped by lower federal courts. And Arizona is asking the Supreme Court to allow this ban to proceed. So even if it's not this case, there are others in the pipeline that will, in our near future, in some way limit the heart of Rowan Casey, i.e. access to abortion pre-viability. If the Mississippi law is upheld, what are the implications then for other states? If the law is upheld, it's predictable. There will be states who go on and enact 15-week bans. And then the door is open to other laws like Texas's six-week ban, which also falls under that umbrella of fetal heartbeat laws. I mean, it definitely doesn't seem like there is a silver lining in this case. But one of my final questions for our conversation would be, do you see a strand of hope for those committed to reproductive justice at this time? I think that's a great question. But I think it's important to remember that reproductive justice isn't just abortion, right? It gets all of the light and heat. Reproductive justice includes being a healthy person who can have a healthy pregnancy and give birth to healthy babies if that's your choice, right? And so this is where I think it's important to remember that we need to also be having conversations about maternal and child health. We need to also be focusing on things like Medicaid's expansion of eligibility postpartum from six weeks to a year, um, which I think will actually move the needle quite a lot on maternal health and child health. This is where it's important to remember that it's still important to work on things like Medicaid expansion in states that haven't done so because those are states with some of the highest maternal mortality rates in the country. So I do think that they're in the reproductive justice space. There's still a lot of good work going on and that needs to be done. And reproductive justice isn't just abortion. It is also access to contraception. It's also healthy pregnancies and healthy births, right? It is ensuring that there are other dimensions to reproduction that are safe and healthy. And so I just want to make a plug for that because I think we forget that sometimes. And and these are the same women who are very vulnerable, who when they make a choice to have an abortion may actually be living in places where they can't do that. I really appreciate your response. Nicole, it's been so wonderful to talk with you and our conversation has been incredibly, incredibly informative. And before you leave, I just want to do a quick round of rapid fire questions, if that's all right with you. Sure thing. Yeah. Okay. So the first question is, what is your go-to snack or meal at the moment? My go-to snack is protein balls. (laughs) I make them at home. (laughs) 
I love it. I love it. <laughs> or dark chocolate covered almonds. That's, that's the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like we, we have somewhere go-to snacks. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one is what piece of art book or song is giving you life? Actually, my home office is full of art that my daughter has drawn for me and huh. it makes me smile. So I, that has to be my answer. I love that. And my last rapid fire question is, what is your mantra that is getting you through this moment? Do I have a mantra? That's a really interesting question. I think it, it would be, you don't have to be able to do great things to do good things. Hmm. That is really fitting for, for this conversation and right now. And if you came up with that on the spot, I applaud you because that was, that's really hopeful for me. So Nicole, thank you so much for this amazing conversation today. I really appreciated you being here and talking with us about everything that you've shared. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to spend this time with you. And I look forward to maybe having a chance to do it again. Tune in for our next episode, where we'll dig deeper into this critical moment around reproductive justice and talk with Marissa Pizzi, the Deputy Director of Programs at Collective Power for Reproductive Justice, about what it means to be an activist working in this space.